There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek, and you've tuned to this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. And of course, it's an honor and pleasure to have you with us. Today's guest is Dr. Lisa Babbage. Dr. Babbage is an author, teacher, and philanthropist. She's the great-granddaughter, four times removed, of English polymath Charles Babbage, who originated the concept of a digital programmable computer in the 1800s. Lisa has spent 20 years teaching math and science in the public school system in Georgia where she lives. As a child, Babbage, her mother and brother, were frequently homeless. In 2011, she took a three-year leave of absence from her profession to inaugurate a nonprofit organization, Marantha House Ministries, aimed at the fight against homelessness. She helps people in giving back to her community through her teaching, writing, and entrepreneurial endeavors to make her community great again. She's currently involved in groundbreaking efforts to reform Georgia's education system and empower more people in Atlanta. I could go on, but I'm sure you'd much rather hear from our guest, Dr. Lisa Babbage. Welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thank you, Chris. It's an honor to be here. No, we appreciate your time. You're, you're in so many different things right now, so I just appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. So, no, it's Lisa, my pleasure. Lisa, as I mentioned, you're involved in some incredible efforts, but let's put the foundation in place before we get to those topics. As a child, Babbage, her mother, and brother were frequently homeless, as I just mentioned. Take us back to those days and share your childhood with us, please. Uh, you know, it's hard to put into words when you experience something that is so gut-wrenching and raw. Um, living in a car is one thing. Many days back in the 1970s, homelessness revolved around the Salvation Army. So we lived in a Salvation Army shelter countless days in numerous cities. And I remember, you know, one thing that always stood to mind, you had to leave every morning and people have seen this epitomized in television. But what cannot translate through the camera is the fact that you are homeless during the day at a second level than when you were at the Salvation Army that evening, because you not only had to leave with everything in tow, but you had to fight for your bunk every evening. And I remember one particular incident when my brother and I um, had taken a bath. We had been at the park or wherever all day and were very grimy, uh, as most homeless people are. And when we came to the shelter and took a bath, we left a ring around the tub, a ring of dirt. And we had not been trained to clean the bathtub because we didn't have a bathtub. And because of that infraction, we were actually put out on the street from the shelter. Um, That is what stands out most to me. I mean, there are numerous incidents, but I will never forget that ring around the bathroom tub. And the type of disruption homelessness brings to children, it's it's really like being in a war zone. You may not have even known the word as a child, but what did those difficult circumstances teach you about resilience, empowerment, and adversity? You know, the, the first thing, and I, I would say the strongest thing, is is that perseverance is key to survival. Um, you know, I remember times when my mother, because lights are turned out automatically at the shelter at a certain time, at least they were in that day, and my mother, who had to stay awake to do whatever, would be in the hallway. 
and we, you know, I would be frequently awake just listening out for her. That was my only security. And so knowing that, you know, sometimes you just have to make things happen. You have to persevere against whatever obstacle may be in your way is something I learned. Now, I can't say that I have mastered it yet, but it's something that I know can be mastered. And just having that uh, knowledge has been, you know, like a sword in my hand, because even when I am unable to persevere, I know that I can fight another day. And, and that's really what's kept me going through, you know, everything that I've endured in my life. So let's fast forward to your adult life. What yeah. drew you to the education profession? Yeah, to be honest with you, it was the time off. Uh, you know, I had many uh, wonderful teachers growing up, uh, two of which I will say saved my life. But I also had some terrible teachers, and I think we can all relate to that. I never wanted to be that terrible teacher. So teaching is actually my second career. However, if you were to ask my brother, he would say, I've always been a teacher. When we were kids, I we would play school, and I would make mini textbooks for my Barbie dolls. So he says, I'm a, I've always been a teacher. But, you know, when I changed careers from banking to education, you know, I was used to those bankers hours, I was used to an accumulated amount of time off, and I married a teacher. So it seemed like the natural thing to do. (laughs) I love that. So your work today, why do you think it's important to reform the education system? And do the reforms need to be targeted to all schools and students? Or are there particular ones that need the reforms more? I mean, certainly I would say that there is a continuum. Certain schools do need certain reforms more. Um, If we talk about, uh, you know, rural America, for example, their problems may be more fine-tuned. And I think we, you know, we've kind of talked about that off air. However, the education system in America has to be completely reformed, regardless of where you are located, regardless of your demographic. I mean, we are seeing an influx of immigrants that change the dynamic of our public schools. We're seeing technology and industry change the dynamic of our public schools. And then we're seeing the global competition crush our national schools. And what we don't have in the Department of Education and even in our uh, state boards of education is the the type of trajectory that's going to keep our nation competitive. And, you know, I, people always say I weep for the children. Well, I weep for the children for so many reasons. And one of them is that we're really not empowering them to have the American dream that, you know, we were raised thinking was attainable. So you said that the whole system has to be reformed. You're not the first person to say that. You're not going to be the last. Right. Right. But is it so broken that it can't be reformed? Where do we start with something as massive as that? Uh, You know, it's really hard to say. I'm in the South, and I tend to focus on urban and suburban uh, reforms because, you know, it you you really need to be from the community that you're trying to reform to have that inside um you know obviously anyone can link arms don't get me wrong but to have that inside track it it helps to actually know i mean i wouldn't want to reform iowa i know nothing about iowa um but as far as you know urban centers especially in the south uh we have a disparage based on socioeconomic status um we also have a disparage in our teacher preparation programs And that is throughout the Southeast. I can speak to that. We unfortunately don't have the standards of educators in place. There are teacher shortages. All of these things factor into our education system. Obviously, a big one is financing. But 
you know, we see lots of schools on a small scale doing with pennies what our um, federal budget cannot do for this nation. So I think, you know, as Americans, we really need to look at education more globally. Um, we need to look at, and, and in fact, I'll, I'll segue quickly, I'm a part of a cohort of 24 teachers nationwide that are pursuing a master's in STEM education. STEM really is the cutting edge of education, but we cannot take literacy outside of that. And that's pretty much my role in this cohort. It has been sponsored by the National National Science Teachers um, Association. It is the first of its kind. I believe it's one step towards uh, reformation. However, as I was getting back to the budget, if we're not really spending our funds appropriately, we're not going to see the change that we want to see in students. And much of that has to do with the mindset of Americans as it as to what education really is. You know, we have a tendency to think of it as you're sitting in a classroom and you're being taught by the sage on the stage. That is really not holistic education. Um, none of us learn other things, other subjects like that. We learn by doing, we learn in smaller cohorts, we learn by actually participating in designing what we are learning. And all of that is part of what education reform should be. You just mentioned, you know, what education is or should be. And there's an old saying, and, and it's cynical perhaps, but not altogether wrong, that everyone thinks they're an expert in education because everyone went to school. One mm -hmm. common opinion is that school's sole, sole focus should be on preparing kids for the workforce. Where do you come down on that issue? I do think productivity uh, is something that must be learned. You know, none of us come out of the womb uh, able to organize things lo logically. Uh, we are not masters of logistics in preschool. That is something that must be learned. I think the, the discrepancy comes in when we talk about what productivity is. You know, for some, I, I believe in aptitude testing at an early age, and I believe in finding out what that kid is naturally gifted at, because as a believer in Jesus Christ, I understand that we all have certain gifts. And once you find out what that child's certain gifts are, you can steer them to, toward productivity in that field. Everyone should not be doing the same thing. You know, we think everyone must go to a four-year college or they're a failure. Uh, we look down on technical and vocational schools as if it's secondary. That's insane. I mean, we would not be able to function as a society if it were not for vocational and technical schools. You know, and that reminds me, I'm going to show my age a little bit here, but there was an old TV show called Frasier, and the two brothers were psychologists, and they both went to Harvard, and Frasier was having a problem with his plumbing, and the plumber came over, and the plumber got a phone call, and it was the, the mechanic, and there's a problem with his Mercedes. And the brothers were like, wait, you've got the big big Mercedes? And so, yes, vocational, I 100% agree with you. So, and I can only imagine how Kelsey Grammer played that exactly, off. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Highly recommend that show. I don't know why I remember this yes. 20 years ago, and I still remember that. Right. So you mentioned a moment ago the $1 million uh, Waterman Prize Project. Mm -hmm. What's the goal, and why do you think it will be good for students? You know, I, I entered the competition for selfish reasons. So I am constantly revising what I think the goal is for me personally. But as a group, the goal is to show uh, American educators that STEM can be infused in every single academic con on, uh, content area and that it can be infused from K to 12. 
Uh, it's not something that we should put only the geeks in, or we should only put people who want to go in career and uh, computer fields. It's for everyone. Problem solving, engineering design is really just critical thinking, and it's for everyone. And so my role is to focus on, the, focus on the social sciences and how we can use STEM in social sciences. But for the project itself, it is to create, um, and this is a, a funny thing that educators, that the, the realm of education does, is we see something that needs to be fixed, we design a program to fix it, and then we say there's a shortage in that area because we just invented a name for the pro problem. And that's what we're doing here <laughs> in a matter of speaking. We have seen that STEM is not being infused across the board, that critical thinking is absent from our uh, education preparation and our classrooms. So we are creating an answer for it through this process. You already have a master's degree in education and pursuing a PhD mm -hmm. in public policy. Now, this project has you back in the classroom to pursue another master's degree. Right. Overachiever still, and that's no easy task. What makes it worth the effort for you? Well, I'll say, I guess my bio needs to be updated because I did receive my PhD in, over COVID. Um, but, you know, for me, coming from homelessness, coming from uh, a 1.4 GPA when I graduated high school by going to night school, um, I knew that I was capable of more. Uh, in academia. I did not have the foundation or the security net to be able to pursue it. So I got, I went to a community college freshman year out of high school and, and became pregnant, unplanned. I went to college part-time for the next 20 years because that's how long it took. You know, I just decided not to stop at that point. I realized I had a lot of catching up to do. It was a personal accountability decision that makes it worth it. Now, this Waterman Prize is a, is a free master's degree. Granted, I have to do the work, but I really couldn't turn down free. Um, and I also couldn't turn down being paid to be a graduate assistant and participating in uh, academia at the highest levels where we're going to be presenting things to American educators. Um, so that was just way too tempting for me. But ultimately, what I'd like to do by accumulating these degrees is to find myself in government so that I can help make the changes that I've been talking about today. So Secretary of Education Babbage? Uh, that would be lovely. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to need bigger wall space for all these degrees you're, you're getting printed there. Right, so right. student populations seem to be getting more diverse, coming from more yep. and more different countries and cultures all the time. Mm -hmm. We used to just think of English as a second language or ESL as covering all the bases. That's not the case anymore, is it? Right. Um, I mean, we don't even call it ESL uh, anymore. It, there's a new term out there, uh, multilingual learner, MLs, um, because many of these students are not learning English as their second language. They're learning English as their third or fourth language. And so it was felt by some that, you know, labeling them as English as their great savior was insulting to their culture. Now, I don't believe that was the intent of anyone when they started using ESL as a terminology. But what we do find is that the diversity in American schools has um, ballooned. Uh, there's no other way to put it. You know, a lot of times, you know, we assume that Spanish is the culture that we are dealing with in schools, but many times it's not, you know, and it really depends on where you are geographically. You know, in Georgia, in Gwinnett County, where I am, northeast suburbs, yes, we have a lot, a huge Hispanic population, but we also have a huge Korean population. We also have a huge Indian population in Georgia. You know, so to, to say that um, 
it's not a problem is an understatement. And I don't mean problem in the negative. It's an opportunity for us as Americans. The problem comes in where our education system was not up to speed prior to the mass immigration that we've seen in the last 20 years. And so it's it's like we were on a sinking ship and then we just put 20 more people in the boat. And I think that's where the struggle comes in for many educators and even school boards. You know, it is unfortunate, but most people who are teaching today don't have the breadth of experience and exposure to other cultures as the students they're teaching. And so there's a little bit of a language gap in that culture bridge that must take place as we bring people into this idea idea of a simulation. And, you know, then that's a whole nother debate. Some people think we shouldn't be assimilating people, um, which I think is ludicrous personally. But because if I was going to Spain, I would be expected to assimilate. So, you know, to some degree. And that doesn't that doesn't take away from anyone's culture. I mean, my father is an immigrant. He actually at 76 just became an American citizen. So I do understand that. But the point of it is, if we as a country are going to move in unison, then we must have some commonalities that we can share. I love that you just said that the problem is not a problem, it's an opportunity. Yeah. I love that. The glass half full. Hey, that's next steps forward. <laughs> exactly. I love it. Thanks for the plug on that. That's perfect. Checks in the mail. So Lisa, maybe this is a simplistic question, but I was taught phonics many years ago, and I understand that many schools have gotten away from that. Has that had a negative or positive effect on students, both immigrant students and those born here in the U.S.? I'm going to say it's a negative effect, uh, even more so for immigrants, but because they are learning English as a secondary language, it may not even be noticeable. But for natural born um, citizens, we're definitely seeing uh, a a regression in our literacy. And part of that is technology. You know, most children who, especially at the middle school and high school level, text more than they talk, they use abbreviated language to do so. And, you know, I'm often, when I see children texting, I'm reminded of the Ebonics question when it came forward, when uh, many were saying that broken English as a cultural norm for Black America was more than okay, it was necessary. Um, I reject that. That premise and I also reject the premise that texting shorthand is the only way children should be able to communicate. So without phonics, they truly do not understand the shape of words. You know, something growing up that I loved in my inner city ghetto school that I went to in elementary school is that we were taught Latin and Greek roots. Now, granted, that was a million years ago, but that was our springboard to phonics. And from that, there may be, you know, numerous words that I use in everyday language and have never seen in print, but this generation can't do that. They cannot communicate at that level. And even when they see a word in print, they have no idea on how to decipher it. So, yes, it's hurting American students. It's hurting our new American uh, students that are coming in. And the the ultimate pain is going to be found when when we are in our 90s and they are running the country. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, we'll have to think about that a little bit more, won't we? Yeah, yeah. We'll have to pray about that a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> so are our expectations too high for those first-generation students? Are we just not finding the right curriculum for them, or are we throwing them into the deep end of the pool and, you know, so to speak, you know, sink or swim? 
You know, that's a really tough question, Chris, and I don't know that I have the answer. What I do know is that, you know, most teachers do not even have the lens to view these students. So in the individual classroom, let me just say this, first of all, I love that my district has gone out of their way to try to meet the needs of these multilingual learners. And many school districts are working really hard to do the right thing. What is the right thing? You know, I subscribe to a notion, and I wish I knew the official name for it, but that the um, assimilation cycle is dependent on the country of origin. You know, certain countries of origin have a similar language structure, you know, whether it's the Romance, the Dramatic, the Slavic, all of these language families take different times to assimilate to English. And then you have that secondary, so that's for academic vocabulary, then you have a secondary level of assimilation, which is cultural, that usually happens faster than the academic assimilation. We don't have enough teachers who even understand that concept. So when they are presenting a standard curriculum, which is all we have, to students, they are presenting it as a cookie, one-size-fits-all curriculum, not recognizing that student A from South America and student B from Korea are going to come to that answer at different way, different times, different paths. It's not just a group of multilingual learners. It is a group of multilingual learners from El Salvador, a group of multilingual learners from Japan. They need different tools and strategies in order to be successful. And is language the biggest barrier? Or are there other factors such as, as you mentioned, cultural beliefs or practices that play that we're just not you know, paying enough attention to? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely real. And I think we find it even more real in the past eight to 12 years, um, this idea of culture, and I don't know when the hyphenated American was uh, invented, but this whole idea of culture superseding what the American um, highway looks like. That has definitely created some sort of rupture. I was speaking with a student toward the beginning of this school year, and I asked the question, what would you give up for freedom? One student said, I would give up my culture. And I never even thought that that you know, was something someone would consider. But it is obviously on the minds of children because they love their heritage. And although they're coming here and newly assimilating, they have more history in their home country than they have in America. So how could we not consider that? And how do we not um, belittle where they came from, even though, you know, perhaps they left of their own free will because they wanted a better life. You know, it's hard to it's hard to say in practice that America is this great melting pot without looking down on those who are coming into the soup. You know, we, we have a tendency to feel superior because we are wanted. And I think that is in, you know, in every area of life. And just maintaining that balance of, of valuing their culture, valuing diversity for that matter, uh, whether it's, you know, black and white Americans, we struggle with that sometimes. Um, that I think that is a missing piece that, you know, probably could, can never be over um, investigated. And how much did the COVID pandemic set back the students you work with? You know, I've seen studies out there who say um, that that two years equated to four years. Um, but when I look at, because the academics are going to catch up, but when I look at, you know, social skills, I am worried. Uh, you know, I have um, many students now who 
were we, there's about a three year group of students who were at critical ages when they were at home without some of the structure. Because to be honest with you, it wasn't just the fact that they were not in school. It's the fact that their parents were stressed out for two years and they were in a stressed out environment. And, you know, that that just breeds. Um, so the mold that COVID caused by having everyone be infected with this heightened sense of stress and unsurety about who they were, our country, what what was going to happen next, that is the biggest, um, you know, problem that happened with COVID, if you ask me. And I really don't know without intensive counseling how those children are going to ever get back to where they should have been. The trajectory is so far off um, that, you know, for some... Obviously, not everyone, but for some, this is going to be a lifelong correction course. So you mentioned a three-year age group, age group in there. What's that age window? So those are kids who are now 11, 10, and 9. So my you know, young- They were at home during that critical time when they should have been ramping up. They, they kind of reverted back. And... Um, even some 12-year-olds, because obviously it depends on the individual child, but it's it's rough for those kids right now. Yeah, our, our youngest son was seven, turning eight at the start of COVID. So he's now 11. He'll be 12 in the spring. Yeah. And so I, I agree with you. Uh, you see it with his friends. And and also now as they're all you know turning of age to get their own phone, mm-hmm. what happens then from a communication and interaction perspective? Right. I mean, they have they have adapted to isolation as a way of life. And, you know, it's it, studies have shown over the years in, in different areas with, where it comes to speech, beliefs, you know, self-identity, that that age from seven to like 11 really does change, uh, you know, shape you as an adult. And so now that they've learned to, to be independent, not problem solve, you know, it's one thing to be <laughs> independent and problem solve, but they're, they've been independent and, and also reliant at the same time. They've almost been victimized to a certain extent, to to withdraw from society. And how do we overcome that? I mean, it's going to be one child at a time, and it's definitely going to be those that live with that child that are going to have the biggest impact. What are the key challenges facing the current education system, and how can reform efforts, such as the one you're involved in, address these issues? You know, one thing that we're doing here in Georgia is, is a ton of community seminars where we educate parents, we educate even school board members on issues that are, are being left out. They're falling through the cracks. When we talk about reform, I think we need to just grab that net around every stakeholder and pull it up because we just let, we've been loosey-goosey. We've let everything fall out. You know, for example, we have a character education law here in Georgia that's been on the books for about 23 years. It is only being implemented in K through five schools. So we see students in middle school when hormones are raging and peer pressure is as well, they're getting suspended. They're getting kicked out of school, sent to alternative schools, yet we have no character education in that school. So, you know, it's like, okay, when the child's compliant in third grade, let's teach them about character education. But when they're out of control, let's not, you know, it doesn't make any sense. So there's like so many different pieces to this puzzle that have to be tightened up. You know, uh, if you imagine a chair and each of the four legs is wobbly because the screws are not tightened, eventually it's going to collapse. I think that's where we are right now. But I do think it can be fixed. I think it's simply a matter of tightening up areas that we already know are sound pedagogically, areas that have already worked, and then, uh, you know, 
opening up that umbrella to areas that are new, like the STEM Waterman Prize, like other things when we're talking about uh, culturally responsive teaching, those kinds of things that we need to do because our student body has changed and because the world has changed. These are all, I mean, it doesn't take a rocket science. We're not curing cancer. We're educating a child. It, it, it doesn't have to be that hard. Maybe as a follow-up to that, how can education policies and practices be made more responsive to the needs of marginalized or underserved communities, including those with diverse cultural backgrounds? Well, you know, I think a lot of what the Department of Education is supposed to do is irrelevant. Um, and so I think when you're talking about allocation of resources, that's a big one. Our, our capital goods for education um, don't make any sense to me. Um, for example, you have a school in a marginalized era, uh, area. They are a, a Title IX school. They receive additional federal funding. They also might be Title X and Title I, and then within that you'll have students who receive additional funding. But there is no logical plan for spending that funding. It is left up to the school district because we do want autonomy there. The problem is if the school district is failing, why are we giving them funds carte blanche without any level of accountability? I remember I taught in a very impoverished school district in a very impoverished school, and we used chart paper, which if you were to buy a roll of this, I think it's about $250 per roll. We used it to cover up bulletin boards to hide mat testing materials. So during testing, instead of using newspaper or taking the materials off the bulletin board, we used this craft paper to cover it up. I mean, the, the craft paper was just wasted. And, you know, I'm just thinking, I know that's a small example, but if we're throwing away $1,000, every teacher throwing away $1,000 in craft paper, what could we have done for this school the school library, you know, bringing other programs in if we just use those funds differently. But I found out that the particular funding source only allowed them to buy consumable craft paper. So, you know, instead of having an extra teacher in the classroom, we just burned craft paper. You know? um, but, you know, there's other things too. You know, I, I had a principal once, I wanted to start a book club and I was told I was not allowed to. I wanted to start an American Girl Book Club, uh, which is a, a doll that teaches you know history that goes with history books. I was was informed that I was not allowed to do that because there were not enough Black American Girl dolls in the um, product line. What are we talking about? Are we talking about kids reading? Are we talking about kids understanding the country in which they live? Are we talking about everything must be about racial e uh, equality? You know. There are not uh, enough black people in this country, <laughs> my opinion, because of abortion. So what are we talking about? <laughs> you know, so I mean, there's just so many opinions that go into education, many of them founded on emotion and personal preference instead of what actually makes logical business sense, because education is a business. You touched on earlier the importance of vocational and technical education. Yeah. I suspect this is a driving factor behind the STEM project. But what role should vocational and technical education play in education reform and how can it be integrated with traditional academic pathways? Well, we have a, a bill that a group I'm a part of is going to be presenting to the Georgia legislator uh, this next session in January, and it's about dual enrollment. You know, back in the 80s, dual enrollment was a big thing. It has kind of dwindled off, at least here in Georgia. 
And what we find is that because the kids today are used to learning from the internet, they're used to learning different skills that, you know, students that I graduated high school with would never understand. I mean, we were just still trying to figure out how to use a typewriter when I came out of high school. So capitalizing on the momentum of the culture in which we live, plus the idea that, you know, automation and technology are really changing the workforce It's a no-brainer as far as I'm concerned. We have five Korean global companies here in Georgia. We are partnering with those companies to make sure that 11th and 12th graders are receiving the training to go straight into the job force um, after a higher date. And what that means is that they are learning their skills instead of waiting until they are um, of age to work for the company full time and then go through the training process. We get that buy-in at a younger age. So by the time they graduate from high school, they're actually earning a salary that they could be proud of. They have a skill set and they've proven a certain loyalty to that company because the turnover that many of these uh, companies are experiencing is truly eating into their bottom line. And so that's one of the problems that we have to overcome. So industry working with education is the key. Dual enrollment is a way to allow that to happen. When we look at state standards for what kids need to graduate, they're taking a lot of courses they don't actually need based on their own state. Why not use that extra time that they're in school and teach them a skill? And we know that not all kids learn the same way. How can education reform better incorporate diverse learning styles and accommodate students with different abilities? You know, there's been a recent um, journal article that said multiple intelligence theory is not true. And I, I gasped when I read that because it's something that I've believed in for a very long time. And uh, I wish I could quote the author, but I'm starting to see what they're saying. They're saying that anyone can learn anything given the right tools. And yes, you may have a preference for a way that you like to learn, but it doesn't mean that that is the only way you can learn. And so I think that people have to learn authentically. That's number one. You know, you can uh, teach someone something in theory. Kids today are not interested in that. You know, um, many years ago, people spent all day theorizing and pondering, but now we've solved a lot of, you know, the universe's questions and people want to actually see change and they want to actually participate in it. So we have to look at learning as something that's authentic and that's local. You know, we need to make sure that uh, students are involved in their community as they learn, because when they are, then they will care about that community more they will be more invested in making sure that community succeeds. That's something that's missing in education today. Involved in their community. Perfect segue for the next, uh, next slew of questions. Let's shift gears. (laughs) Let's shift gears a little bit. And obviously we've been talking about education, education reform, but let's focus on some of your other efforts before we jump back to education. Okay. I mentioned earlier in the show, you're active in a diverse range of issues from protecting the elderly to addressing the problem of banking deserts. The former we can all understand and appreciate, the latter may be one that some of our audience members may not have heard of. Detail the issues you've been working on, what you think the solutions are, and how you're going about creating these solutions. So banking deserts, for those who don't know, are uh, areas of a community in which banks, traditional banks, are absent. That may mean that the citizens rely on um, cash advance stores, they uh, rely on payday loans, they rely on alternative means of financing 
And that decreases their bottom line for their family because there are demonstrative fees that are, are involved in that. And so just like um, I know, for example, in Georgia, we uh, had a time in which many of our rural hospitals were closing. Well, the same thing happens with banking. Obviously, the community cannot thrive without these basic uh, needs being met. And a banking desert is traditionally, at least in the South, it, it plagues not just Black America, which it does, but uh, in the rural areas, it plagues all Americans. And so what we would like to do is we are putting forth legislation, again, because part of this is community awareness, part of this is consumer awareness, the other part of it is, is laws that help prevent these things from happening. So as a part of the law that or the bill that we're putting forth, we are encouraging um, certain banks to move into these communities with incentives from our state budget. So for example, um, we have a lottery funded pre-K program here in Georgia. And I'm just, this is not in the bill, but I'm using this as an example. If all the funds from that lottery funded pre-K program can be diverted to XYZ Bank with the provision that XYZ Bank will move into these areas that do not have a bank. So it is a way that the, the government is supporting these banks moving into areas that are considered bank deserts in order to stabilize that community. And then they, the contract between the state and the banking entity is one of a waning support. So we allow you to share the risk. You move into this area. It supports our community. As the community grows, then the state's risk removes. But just in a scenario like that, it really changes the trajectory of a community. And so when we think of scarcity, it can be in banking, it could be in, in any form, that's a vulnerable community that's experiencing scarcity. And really, in this country, there's no reason for us to have you know, scathing pockets of scarcity because uh, this is the greatest country. Land of opportunity. Yeah. No, couldn't agree more. So, Lisa, there's been a real push in a number of states across the country to enact choice, uh, excuse me, choice measures where part or all of the state's per pupil funding would would follow the students wherever they go. The parents mm-hmm. could choose a public, private, or religious school. The argument is that school choice will force bad public schools to get better, and it gives poor and middle income kids the same opportunities as kids from wealthy families. What's your opinion on school choice? Is that something that's happened or is happening in Georgia? It is something that's happening in Georgia, more so for athletes than anyone else. I tell you, a lot of people in rural America have a problem with school choice because here in the South, we call them county schools. Uh, You have one high school that, you know, a large geographic area feeds into. There is no choice. Um, So it doesn't make sense for those individuals to feel threatened by this type of legislation. However, I don't really see why they would feel threatened. You know, if if it doesn't apply, it also doesn't take away from, you know, the per pupil spending in that community. For a more urban or suburban areas, it definitely would bring competition. I mean, as I said before, education is a business. So if we don't treat it as a business, then we really are you know, just have a hole in our pocket and the money's just kind of falling through. I think that, you know, when we increase accountability 
And I don't mean micromanaging by any means. I, I do believe educators are artists and they need that freedom to kind of ebb and flow. But we do have to have accountability for taxpayer funding. We do have to have accountability to our future generations. And so uh, bringing something like um, school choice into the equation really will make the difference for many communities and many students or in failing schools. Add to that this idea of, you know, religious schools, um, you know, many religious schools who are, you know, not the, the big 10 in, in the uh, nation do struggle to increase their student body because they cannot compete um, for those big dollars. I think this would allow more parents to have the freedom of where to send their child because many Many parents, I believe, would prefer to send their child to a school that aligns with their family beliefs, but they don't have the funding to do so. Yet they're still paying taxes to a school that, you know, challenges their family beliefs. And I think that's a problem because if we are truly giving educational freedom to Americans, faith should not be removed from that conversation. It's one of the the founding principles of the country. Correct. Correct. All right, so let's talk about something near and dear to your heart, teacher preparation. Mm. What are the key components of effective teacher preparation programs, and how can they be continually improved to meet the changing needs of students in schools? Gosh, that's a loaded question. Um, You know, I think, first of all, exposure. I'll go back to that because, you know, right now I'm mentoring four new teachers, Two of them have had other careers, and one is fresh out of college. The one that's fresh out of college hasn't been warped <laughs> by other careers. <laughs> and the, the other two who have families, have you know done things, are coming into this from a more uh, business approach. We cannot forget the fact that these are still children. You know, even though I say education should be run as a business and I stand by that, when you get into that four walls of the classroom, these kids need nurture. They need a a mother and a father figure. They need a counselor. They need a doctor. They need a teacher. Um, They need a lot of things that they may not have at home. And even if they do have them at home, for that eight hour period, you're the surrogate. And I don't think that um, many teachers embrace that part of their job because it is part of the job. And the reason being is because they are red taped to death, you know, uh, whether it's high stakes testing or planning or whatever it is that's going on on the other side of teaching. There's more than just teaching involved in teaching and teachers have to be given the freedom to embrace that and to go with it, not follow a, a scope and sequence that allows no days in the school year for wiggle room. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's really a, a tight screw that's going to give way. We were talking earlier about culture carrying even more weight than language. How can mm. teacher preparation programs incorporate cultural competency training to better prepare educators for diverse classrooms? You know, there are uh, quite a few programs out there, um, but I think the requirement to get a degree in education is one course. And I think that's a problem um, because when we speak of diversity, we lump people into, okay, you're diverse, you're not. Uh, there's much, much more than that. There, there's a rainbow there. You know, I was thankful to have been raised in a multi- multicultural family. And so for me, it was a little easy to make those changes, but I'm still challenged 
by the students in my classroom. So I can only imagine people who have lived on a very narrow tree their whole life, you know, what they're facing when they don't even begin to comprehend the, the cultures that they are engaged with daily. Um, so teacher preparation that includes more than one course on culturally responsive uh, teaching is probably a good place to start. But second of all, I think there needs to be a lot more immersion. Um, you know, typically in a teacher education program, you have three field experiences. I think I don't think that's enough. And I think those field experiences need to be extremely diverse. So for example, when I uh, was becoming a certified teacher, I did my three field experiences within a five mile radius of where I live. I did that for convenience. I don't even think that should be allowed. You know, what is the point to that? You know, so I saw the same three kids that my kids grow up with. Okay, great. That did not prepare me for the classroom. You know, it did get me to graduation. But I think when we look at what field experience should be, I mean, this is a hands-on career. You know, we really need to spend a lot more time sitting in a classroom and observing what a master teacher does. We shouldn't walk into our own classroom and have literally no clue what comes next. And that's what I find for many of the teachers I'm mentoring. I'm having to walk them through step by step. That should have been done before they got their own classroom. You've written nonfiction books, 333 Miracles, and That's So Cookie Cutter Kids. Tell us about them and how can we find them? So all of my books are available on Amazon. Some of them are on Barnes and Noble under Lisa Noel Babbage. You know, um, 333 Miracles was the first book I published uh, through Lifeway. And it is basically my testimony of when I went through a divorce. And it recalls some of the stories that we started talking about at the beginning of the show. Since then, I have uh, kind of just uh, let my imagination flow. Uh, even though it's all nonfiction, uh, you know, I'm definitely a researcher at heart. I want to convey to, you know, people that are older than the students I teach every day, what some key ideas are that for us to consider as a nation. I have a book uh, coming out in January about the courts of heaven. So a lot of the things that I uh, write do have a slant toward faith. Um, but many times it's just, have you considered this? This is an idea. This is something that's going on in the world. You may not be aware of. Have you considered it? And um, Not So Cookie Cutter Kids is a perfect example of that. So in that book, I wrote about my fifth grade class. In that class, I had 34 students from about 25 different countries. And one or two of those students had never stepped foot in a classroom before. And I basically told their stories and I told, you know, one, the struggle that teachers have when they find themselves in a classroom like that, but two, how to meet those struggles, how to meet those kids where they are and how to take them forward. And so it's very narrative. And that is a, um, a new genre, almost that particular book, but everything that I write is about learning and growing because I think that's where we have to be as human beings. Which you continue to do every day, going back to school for your 27th degree or whatever it may be at this point. <laughs> No, Hopefully my last. I understand Hopefully that. I, I've been last. down that path before too. I've said the same thing. Yeah. So Lisa, we have about three or four minutes left and I always like to have our guests take us to close with something that gives them hope or offer advice for audience to help them become less stressed, more content and more empowered, whether that pertains to the future for the nation's children or just our current everyday lives. The floor is yours. 
You know, I think that if you woke up today, if you're hearing this program, you have a great opportunity in front of you. And every opportunity comes with challenges, excitement, um, even some nerves. The opportunity is yours. And that's the beautiful part of being alive today. You know, there's so many ways that we as Americans or we as individuals can improve our sphere of influence, whether that's our household, our state, or our country. And from that perspective, what we have to do is just keep moving forward. And that is what is required for each one of us. That's the opportunity we have. And I just say, go for it. Don't be afraid. Do what you need to do and do what you can do. Land of opportunity and go for it. Dr. Lisa Babbage, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Chris. And thank you to our audience, which now includes people in over 50 countries. So thank you to all of you, those of you listening out there, for joining us for another episode of Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details on upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek Public Figure. And then X, formerly known as Twitter, at some point we'll stop saying that, at Chris Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place, with another leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.